0: and welcome to The Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. My name is David Chen and joining me today, he is the man who played Alan in the upcoming Comedy Central series Big Time in Hollywood, Florida, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today, sir?
1: I am doing very good. The countdown begins because when do we premiere Big Time in Hollywood? Something like the end of March. March
0: 25th yikes on comedy central
1: david i had more fun shooting this show than about anything i've ever done in my life we were just we were laughing every take all the time and i saw our executive producer ben stiller for the first time about what six weeks ago we were at one of those big conferences with all the new shows or being interviewed by reviewers and ben came up to me and he said with enormous surprise in his eyes saying "Stephen." The show is really funny, really good. I was a well, I hope so. But, you know, you expect an executive producer to pat you on the back and congratulate you. But it was the surprise that Ben had in his eyes that makes me inclined to believe that this show could be something special, big time in Hollywood, Florida.
0: Well, the first episode of the show is available on YouTube right now. You can check it out there. And it is very funny. And the show will premiere on March 25th on Comedy Central. We encourage you guys to check it out. But Stephen, we have other big news beyond the fact that you're going to be appearing regularly in a show that's seen by millions of people. Oh, dear. We are launching a new podcast, and you can find this podcast at bigproblemspodcast.com. Why a new podcast? Why do we need to launch a new podcast when we can't even update this one uh, on a fairly regular basis?
1: Why are we doing that, David?
0: Uh, The reason is because every episode of The Tobolowsky Files... You know, this is a shock to people, but you do not extemporaneously make it up as you go along. You actually write it down, you practice it, and you perform it on the podcast. How long does that take you, Stephen?
1: Well, David, the, the one that we're going to do today took me four weeks to write. And, uh, you, you know, to do 50 minutes or so, which w- w- is what we're aiming for now, it is really about 7,000 words. And, and for you people out there, who word count is not part of your daily thought process, let me give you a, a frame of reference. When you sign a book deal, the standard book deal is for 80,000 words. 80,000 words is the American equivalent of a book. So when I do a podcast that's 7,000 words, that's almost one-tenth of a book every, every podcast.
0: That is a massive quantity of writing and performing, and uh, it's all done for free here on the Tobolowski Files. Uh, but there's a tension, Stephen, because uh, here we have someone who is incredibly eloquent, wise, uh, erudite, with a ton of knowledge, and you.
1: Yeah, thank you. I'm,
0: I'm kidding. I kid, of course. I was referring to you. Um <laughs> Uh we, we have some, someone who's very knowledgeable about a lot of things and who's uh, dispensing that knowledge for us. There's a tension there because we want to bring Stephen's thoughts and knowledge to the wider audience and do so on a regular basis. Um, so we are going to be creating this other podcast where people can ask for advice on any type of question, uh, whether it's a big question, existential question, or a small question about how to go about your daily life. And Stephen will answer for you.
1: With, with the proviso that you cannot sue me if the answer is wrong. Uh, I, I am doing this strictly for a fortune cookie value.
0: For entertainment purposes only.
1: Entertainment purposes only.
0: You're like the equivalent of a, of a late night television fortune teller. Uh, no one can take you seriously uh, or else. That's but right. In any case, uh, this is going to allow us to do the show regularly. And uh, on a weekly basis. And um, we hope you guys will tune in. We'll probably put the first episode here on the feed of the Tobolowsky Files so you can get a sense of it. And you can find more episodes of the show at bigproblemspodcast.com. The Tobolowsky Files will continue, of course. Uh, But we were hoping that people would get a kick out of hearing more Stephen Wisdom on a regular basis at bigproblemspodcast.com. So hope to see you guys there. In the meantime, Stephen... There's been a lot of stuff going on, but a lot of stuff that we can't talk about. The movie that The Tobolowsky Files is based off of, The Primary Instinct, uh, is complete. And we have a premiere date, but we can't say what it is. Uh, it's going to happen in the next few months, so uh, and we will premiere at a major U.S. film festival uh, that uh, will be the first time that many people will watch the film. And uh, I can imagine that anyone listening to this podcast right now will be a big fan of this film that's based on the show, The Tobolowsky Files. Uh, but yeah, it's a lot of waiting. Steven, I, I bet you encounter a lot of waiting in your life as well. Um, you know, for auditions, like you probably audition for a lot, and and uh, you don't hear back for weeks, if not ever.
1: Thank you, thank you for that. Yes, that's absolutely true. Sometimes you you sometimes you find out that they wrote your part out, or they gave, like on on uh, Heroes, they were going to change uh, Robert to Roberta, and they were going to cast it as a woman. David, I probably told you this story. This is the worst story. That I remember from waiting. Uh, when I was working on the movie in Canada. And even though I'm first up on the call sheet. I had been sitting in my trailer for hours. And I'm not complaining. I love my trailer. It was outfitted with everything i would become accustomed to. A small television and a radio that did not work. And a toilet with a flush mechanism that was so Canadian. It required an instructional diagram glued to the seat. I was lying down on my couch in a state of perpetual drift, when there was a knock on my aluminum door. I sprung to full consciousness and opened my tin can. It was one of our executive producers. Stephen, I'm sorry we're running late. We added a baboon to the party scene and we're trying to get his coverage first. He's been very temperamental. We'll get to you as soon as we can. He left. I sat back down on my nasty couch and rapidly sank into a strange depression. Now, let me be clear. I wasn't upset about being put on the back burner. That happens all the time in film. I wasn't even upset about being a lower priority than a baboon. Even though it was a little sickening that I was in a movie that was so bad, they thought adding a baboon would increase audience appeal. It may have been the helplessness. There was nothing I could do but wait. There's a famous quotation on acting attributed to Orson Welles. He was asked about the enormous salary he was commanding after the success of Citizen Kane. He answered stoically, I act for free. They pay me to wait. So true. Most actors will work for free. Producers on cable television have already figured this out. What you can't teach at a university is that the most difficult aspect of acting isn't finding the comedy in Ibsen or handling the verse in Shakespeare. It's the waiting in every respect. An actor waits his entire career. He waits for auditions. He waits to get cast. He waits for baboons. He waits to see if his scenes will be cut from the film. And then when it's all over, he waits again, hoping he or she still has a career. I had an audition at Warner Brothers late one afternoon. Rather than battle the traffic home, I stopped at a bar for a beer and to mentally replay every mistake I probably made in my reading. To my amazement, I ran into a fellow actor from the Baboon movie. I'd like to say I had a drink with him. I didn't. He was taking my order. He was my bartender. I asked him if he ever went out on auditions anymore. He shook his head and laughed. Oh no, Stephen, I gave it up. I couldn't take it. Without asking, I understood the millions of different hurts that could turn someone into a bartender. But I asked anyway. I told him he had really great presence. He was good in our scenes. He had an agent. Why quit? He said, I couldn't take not knowing. Not knowing if I would work this week, next month, this year, if I would get an audition. If I was getting sent out on everything I was right for, it was making me crazy. I have a wife and a family. I couldn't take the stress of letting them down. And at least a martini is trustworthy. I believed him, not just the part about the dependability of a martini. There was a calmness of decision in his eyes. Several times over the years, I've fantasized what it would be like to leave the business and become a bartender, or a waiter, or even worse, a teacher. I always sensed there was something delusional in thinking these professions were islands of sanity. I couldn't do it, just too much work. An actor always has the comfort of lots of unemployment. As bad as show business is, it's not as inhuman as getting tenure. As I drove home, my mind kept going back over that moment in the trailer in Canada. There was something dreadful about the waiting. It was different than stopping at a traffic light or lining up for security at the airport. It wasn't irritating. It was disheartening. I couldn't give it a name. But I would bet all of us have gotten trapped in that shapeless prison where past and future vanish and we sit waiting for the baboon to finish. Unless you can give fear a name, you can never conquer it. I discovered what I suspected was the source of my dread many years later. I was a guest at San Francisco Sketch Fest in 2014 as a panelist on the Dana Gould Hour. It's very difficult for me to be a guest on Dana's show. <laughs> I find him so funny and insightful that usually I just sit there and listen and don't speak, which isn't good to do on an audio podcast. He was extemporizing about how arrogant chimps were when he dramatically changed the subject and asked, Stephen, what are you afraid of? I spoke almost by instinct and said, nothing. The audience of a couple hundred people chuckled as if I was on the verge of saying something clever, which I wasn't. Dana rushed into the void and congratulated me on arriving that point in my life when I had surpassed my fears. I corrected the record. "Uh, That's not what I meant, Dana. It's not that nothing scares me. "'It's that I'm scared of nothing. "'There are a lot of nothings out there, "'and I'm scared of every one of them.' "'A little bulb went off in my head "'and I stood up from the table. "'You see, Dana, standing here in the light, "'I could see where I am. "'I'm fine. "'But here,' and I walked to the edge of the stage "'and gestured to the darkness beyond the proscenium. "'Here, one step more, and I'm lost. "'I could see nothing.' Except, of course, smiling faces in the dark. That's always comforting. But I still won't take another step. I'm facing the nothing, and it's always scared me. Sometimes it's good to talk without thinking. It's the only way we can hear our instincts. Instincts are the light from old stars. They're the remains of lessons from our childhood, our infancy, or maybe even before. Like the light of a distant supernova. Instincts remain even though the source may long be gone. It's pleasant to look on how you got from here to there. It's the operating theory behind the photo album. I often reflect on my college days when becoming an actor seems so far away, so impossible to reach. These thoughts even make acting with a baboon seem pleasant. It's not as pleasant to remember the fears you've had in your life. Usually you have to pay people by the hour to listen to them. It's even more difficult to track the nothings. They're hard to describe. They exist somewhere on the food chain between unconsciousness and dread. But they're just as formative as food, water, and sunshine. I would argue they're the third N of human development. Nature, nurture, nothing. The first big nothing for me was the dark. I was terrified of going to bed when I was little. This was compounded by the fact that I had a monster living in my room. He usually stayed in my closet, but sometimes he didn't. His name was I, the monster. Whenever mom said it was bedtime, I would sneak into the kitchen and grab a steak knife to hide under my pillow in case I attacked. It must have worked because I always made it to the morning. When mom woke me, I had to hide the steak knife before she made my bed. I was more ashamed of that knife than having a monster living with me. There is something fundamentally embarrassing about fear. Sidebar. I, the monster, only attacked me once that I can recall. One night, I rolled over in bed and felt I's hand go into my back, and he whispered, Don't move. If you roll over, I'll strangle you. I reached for my steak knife and waited. I wanted I to make the first move. I fell asleep before he did. I woke up some time later still holding the steak knife. I whirled around and I was gone. Sometime in the night he switched places with my stuffed rabbit. I stabbed the rabbit anyway, just as a warning to I or any other monsters who wanted to mess with me that I wouldn't go down easy. The nothings developed more defined shapes over the years waiting for a report card, calling a girl on the phone, applying to colleges, applying to theater companies. After I became a working actor, you would think the nothings would retreat. Not true. They only took on more malignant shapes. One episode of Glee, I arrived at Paramount mid-morning to do one scene. I went through hair and makeup and started to get mentally ready to work. I asked the assistant director when he thought I would be shooting. He called to the set on his walkie talkie. A minute later, he got the word. My scene was next. So I began to gear up. I made sure I had my lines cold, thought through different ways I could make various beats work, put on my costume, and I sat. One hour later, the AD came to my trailer and said, Hold it, there's a flag on the play. He'd get back to me shortly. I said, No problem. I sat. I read. I listened to the radio. Two hours later, he came to the trailer and said the scene was being rewritten and to hang in there. My stomach alarm went off. I said, well, well, get me the lines as fast as you can. You got it. He mock saluted and left. I waited. I fell asleep. Two hours later, I was startled awake by a knock on my trailer door. It was the young A.D. He said I could go home. I had been written out of the show. I took off my pink sweater and lime green pants for what turned out to be almost the last time. Over the years, my character on Glee rarely made a return. A lot of hurts were tied up in that day of nothing. At first, I expected to be back. Each week that passed without getting a call cut at me. I was filled with uncertainty. Maybe I did something to offend someone. Maybe I didn't deliver what they wanted. Maybe someone at the network didn't like me. Oh, dear. That started an entire new cascade of insecurity over future projects. The common theme that ran through all of these nothings was a loss of heart and a withering of my personal courage. Actors always feel their strong point is their emotional life or their psychological insights. Stanislavski, the great acting teacher and director from the late 19th century, disagreed. He said the number one thing an actor needs to perform is will. Will, not emotion, gives one the strength to open a script and turn the pages. Will is the direct descendant of our courage. That is why nothing matters. Isaac Newton envisioned the portrait of a universe that seeks balance. Forces equalize. Everything rushes in to fill a vacuum. Darwin believed the same thing applies to the evolution of life. New forms rush in to fill an empty niche. No matter where you look, it would seem the universe response to nothing is something. Human life is very complicated. We feel nothing on many different levels. We try to fill it in a variety of ways. Snack food gardening, martinis, music, new types of blue jeans, listening to this story. And if those don't work, there's always Xanax. Our response to nothing defines us in two ways, how we feel it and how we fill it. For example, depression could be seen as a hypersensitivity to nothing, to only feel emptiness even when surrounded by plenty. And its opposite, the inability to feel nothing, could be even worse. It could be the inability to experience the holy. I think we use the word holiness to describe the rush of quiet energy we feel when something enters to fill the nothing. My father was not a religious man. However, he would always say he felt holy walking alone in the woods and I believed him. I felt the same thing as a child in the woods around our home. It might have been the sound of water rushing in a creek after a rain or the crack of a tree branch as I walked on the silent trail. I didn't think about it back then. I just knew what my dad was talking about. I felt the rush of the holy when I was a child in Sunday school. During silent prayer, an organ in the choir loft would play a few single notes, and something rushed into me to fill the nothing. Back then, I called a God. What I wanted to tell Dana that night but didn't have the words, the nothing is never nothing. Our response to nothings become many things that follow us through our lives, everything from habit to addiction to belief. Once something rushes in, like a science fiction movie, it can become part of our flesh and blood. We used to take trips to my mother's childhood home in Pennsylvania when I was a boy. I was about ten. I slept in a big feather bed with my brother Paul. One night I heard a noise. I got out of bed and crept downstairs. Everything was dark, silent. Then I heard the noise again. Hair stood up on the back of my neck. Again the noise. My echo locator told me it was coming from Granny's baking room or her rolling out the dough room, or her rocking chair room. I don't really know what it was called. This place was too big to be a pantry and too narrow for any people to be in it except for Granny and her chair. The room always smelled of yeast. It was the glorious source of Granny's pies and breads and homemade noodles for her chicken soup. And now it was the place where something else seemed to reside. Something undefined. I tiptoed into the blackness. All I could hear was my breath and the wooden floor creaking as I walked. I heard the sound again. It was sharp. It came from the wall behind Granny's chair. Along that wall, there were some shelves where she kept sugar and flour and other mysteries. I saw a blue light coming through the wall. I walked up to investigate and saw that the wall was not really a wall. Partly hidden by Granny's icebox and shelves was a door. It was locked, but the blue light was coming through the keyhole. I bent down to look. All I could see was the dazzling blue light. Then a dark shape moved across the keyhole. The door shook. I ran. I ran up the stairs, back into the bed, pulled the covers up over my head. My brother mumbled, Stevie, be still. Paul, Paul, there's a ghost. What? A ghost downstairs by Granny's rocker. "'What were you doing down there? I heard a noise,' I said. Paul turned over and said, "'It's nothing. Go to sleep and stop kicking me.'" Paul was older and wiser, but his counsel couldn't be trusted tonight. He didn't hear what I heard or see what I had seen. I told my Uncle Ben about the ghost the next morning. Ben listened to me. His face was stone There was no trace of condescension. When he heard my tale, he nodded with authority. Stevie, I didn't want to tell you this. I didn't want you to be afraid. We have an unexpected guest. He showed up last night after you got here. Who, Uncle Ben? I, the monster. He must have followed you here. I told him to leave you alone. He said he didn't mean any harm. He just missed you. I set up a place for him to sleep down in the coal cellar. I hope you don't mind. I was going to tell you this morning. It had been years since I had seen I. It was half my life ago when I snuck my last steak knife into my bed. But I didn't vanish. My nothing came to Pennsylvania and now belonged to my Uncle Ben. I always saw Uncle Ben taking a bowl of water down to the coal cellar. He told me it was for I in case he got thirsty. When we went on car trips, Uncle Ben would go down to the cellar and come up with his arm around nothing, talking, Don't worry, I. Stevie is here, too. He's going to sit up front with us. Uncle Ben would open the trunk and help I in, saying, Are you comfortable? Oh, good. What? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's going to be a pretty long trip. We're going to go to Chapman Lake. You'll like it there. Then Uncle Ben carefully closed the trunk, He gave me the okay sign and said, He's fine, Stevie. He said, The trunk is very roomy. And off we went. I don't know where or when Uncle Ben heard about I, but my monster returned to me that summer in Pennsylvania. Ben taught me the invaluable lesson that our nothings don't necessarily go away, but sometimes they could turn from fear to kindness. Kindness. It took me a while to realize that I've been interested in nothing for most of my adult life. I went to a class at the synagogue conducted by Rabbi Bernhard. Rabbi Bernhard has been a pivotal figure at several important moments of my life. He helped me deal with my mother's passing. He married Anne and me under the hoop by the rabbit hole in our backyard. And if that wasn't enough, he told me afterwards that it was the policy of the synagogue to give a year's membership to newlyweds. So basically, Anne and I got to pray for free. Rabbi Bernhard's class was on morality. Where does it come from? What was it? And along the way, he introduced the ideas of the great French philosopher Emmanuel Levinas. Levinas had an interesting theory that morality does not exist as an independent quantity It is the product of a relationship It only exists in conjunction with someone or something else What Levinas called the other For example, you're sitting on a bus and an old woman gets on board Once you see her, the moral imperative rises to offer her your seat Levinas theorized that there's an invisible dialogue that transpires between us and everything we encounter. This dialogue is what we call morality. Ultimately, how we act in the world, our goodness, our badness, is a product of what we see. This is why cat videos can be a powerful tool for good or for evil. When class was over, I wanted to understand more of the ideas of Levinas, so I picked up an anthology of his work. Sidebar. After reading a couple of his essays, the only thing I was sure of was that Levinas probably spent a lot of time alone. He must have been impossible on a date. He was so educated he couldn't say anything in a comprehensible way. For example, whereas you and I might say, You look lovely tonight. Levinas would say something like, The as, that is existence, only supplants the subjectivity of the wanted as long as time and darkness warrant the viewed subjectivity of the observed. After stumbling around in the thesaurus of his mind for a while, I made a surprising discovery. Levinas was afraid of nothing, too. He wrote an essay about it, all of my nothings, even fear of the dark. After rereading the same paragraph for several days, this is what I gleaned. As night falls, we can no longer see what is in front of us. However, we still have a sense that something is there. Darkness strips us of perception, which for all practical purposes strips us of consciousness. In this way, darkness gives everything the same value, what we call uncertainty. It's that uncertainty that creates fear. Armed with Philosophy I was ready to fight my fear of nothing. Logic told me if the nothing creates fear by stripping me of perception, I should add things to perceive when I'm isolated by circumstance or in my trailer. I could experiment by finding something compelling to do while I was waiting on the set. As if in answer to a prayer, God invented Game Boys. In 2015, Game Boys had been reduced to paperweights at garage sales. But there was a time when it was a national fever to own one. Fights broke out over who would get to play Mario. Parents put timers on their children so homework would get done. The creators had successfully tapped into the human desire for low-resolution graphics and circus music. Game Boys came preloaded with something called Tetris. Tetris was a game that redirected the desire to clean your closet. Different sized boxes fell at higher and higher speeds. You had to organize and make the boxes disappear before you were buried alive. I found this game completely addictive. I played every chance I could get in hopes of securing a higher and higher score that would signify to no one that I had accomplished nothing. Anne was irritated with my fixation on Tetris, especially at bedtime. But who needs romance when you could score 20,000? After facing her constant disapproval, I did what any addict would do. I got her to play, too. Soon, Anne was hooked. Her addiction was healthier than mine in that she still took time to clean our closets. The division of addiction worked perfectly. I would take the Game Boy to work, and Anne would play with it when I came home. All was good until Anne and I were both cast in a Disney film called My Father the Hero. We were shooting in a hellhole named Paradise Island, the sore capital of the Caribbean. Sidebar. I don't mean this as a put-down of the Bahamas. I'm trying to be factual. As an actor, I travel a lot. The first day I arrive in a new place, I explore my surroundings. I try to find the nearest coffee, the nearest restaurants, the nearest pharmacy. I always check out the drugstores to see what's on the front shelves. That's what they sell the most. In Thailand, they had fungus cream. In Brazil, they had intestinal worm killers. On Paradise Island, they had rows and rows of canker sore remedies. I thought it was funny until my mouth broke out on day five and I looked like I'd eaten a jar of cherry jam. The makeup people just spray-painted me. To save money, the producers asked if Ann and I could share a trailer. Since we already had experience at sharing small spaces, I agreed. Here is when we faced the Game Boy dilemma. Who would get the Game Boy and for how long? Anne, being the more evolved of the two of us, realized this would be a problem and brought a book to read when she wasn't playing Tetris. She said I could read the book when it was her turn to play. (laughs) Yeah, right, like that was going to happen. We agreed on 20-minute shifts. The test of the system came early. We had a night shoot. We were about to spend ten hours together in a trailer. Being a gentleman, I offered Ann the Game Boy first. She declined and said she would read. She brought How Green Was My Valley. We began by being fairly strict about the Tetris trade-off. Around midnight, Ann shocked me by declining her turn with the Game Boy. Then about 1 a.m., Something remarkable happened. Anne said, Stephen, put that Game Boy down and read this chapter with me. I thought she had lost her mind. I must have appeared hesitant. Anne made a second challenge. She said, come on, come on, read this one chapter with me, and if you don't like it, you could have the Game Boy for the rest of the night. Wow. She went all in. I took her up on it. We lay in the bunk bed together and started reading about little Hugh, a 10-year-old boy in the mining country of Wales. We read about his father and brothers digging coal and how Hugh couldn't wait for the day he was old enough to work in the mines with him. We read about the sudden winter storm sweeping in and catching Hugh and his mother unprotected in the woods. His mother passed out. Hugh had to jump into the freezing river and stand there for hours to keep her from falling in the water and drowning. Okay, okay, we had to read the next chapter. Hugh and his mother were rescued, but Hugh was near death. The doctor told the family even if he lived, he would never walk again. Hugh spent the next year in bed. At this point, the story wove around the kindnesses of his family and of the new schoolmaster in town who told him stories and excited him about learning. Next chapter, his first steps, his first days in school. Falling in love. We read the book until dawn. Instead of feeling drained by the night shoot, we were energized. All that Ann and I could do was talk about the book and the van ride back to the hotel. The next night, we brought the Game Boy. But we never played it. We couldn't wait to revisit Hugh. The night after that, the Game Boy stayed at the hotel. And quite by accident, my life had changed. Besides being one of the most gripping stories I had ever read, this book affected my relationship to time. I didn't even want to think about the hours I had spent on the set playing Tetris or doing crossword puzzles. What if my depression in Canada had nothing to do with the baboon, but was connected to the amount of time in my life I had wasted? I made a vow to Anne. From that day on, I would use my time on the set to read, but not just any books. They had to be books I had promised myself I would read at one time or another in my life. Beyond the pleasure of the book, I would have the satisfaction of knowing the promises I made to myself meant something. And in that way, honesty would be the guardian of courage. I took it one step further. I made a rule that I could only read these certain books on the set, or on my way to the set. I couldn't read them at home. Now, I'm not sure why I put this restriction on myself. It could have been the scientist in me saying this way I would have visible proof of how much time I had wasted and how much time I had reclaimed. I started the experiment in 1994. Since that night, on the set of dozens of television shows and movies, I've read David Copperfield... Silas Marner, Middlemarch, Daniel Deronda, Barnaby Rudge, The Pickwick Papers, Adam Bede, A Tale of Two Cities, Dombey and Son, Oliver Twist, Our Mutual Friend, Bleak House, Mill on the Floss, Either or, Two Volumes of the Midrash, Four Volumes of the Talmud, Saint Augustine's City of God, and more, more. It's terrifying, terrifying, the amount of nothing I had willingly allowed into my life. Now as an actor... I always have a secondary goal on the set. If I'm kept waiting all day, that's just more time for my reclamation project I call The Things I Wanted to Have Known in My Life. And there have been unexpected benefits from my study. While I was shooting The Country Bears, Dietrich Bader saw that I was reading Dickens. He sat down beside me and asked if I always read Dickens on the set. I told him whenever I could. I told him about the night in the Bahamas and the promise I made. Dietrich started laughing and jumped out of his chair and said, I did the same thing. I just finished Bleak House. Stephen, it's the best book ever. I always keep Dickens close to me when I work. I ran into Dietrich a year later walking down the sidewalk in New York. He hugged me and said, Bleak House? I said, best book ever written. He said, wait till you get to A Tale of Two Cities. And thus Dickens makes strange bedfellows of us all. I was shooting one man's hero in Durango, Mexico. Now it's famous for beheadings and drug wars, but back then it was more peaceful. It was the epicenter for venomologists studying the poison of what was identified as the deadliest scorpion in the world. We were told before the shoot if we were stung, we had one hour to get antivenom before we died. We were staying at the El Gubernador Hotel, which used to be the maximum security prison in town. The man at the front desk told me too many prisoners died from scorpion stings, so they decided to pull out the bars, put in marble floors, fumigate, and call it a hotel. The movie was a period piece about the American-Mexican War of 1846. So we needed to shoot somewhere that had no airplanes or telephone poles. Our locations manager picked an area of the Sonoran Desert to recreate a gigantic battle sequence. There were horses, there were cannon, there were thousands of extras. I shot a scene at the beginning of the evening right before the battle commenced. Finished around 11 p.m. They told me to wait in my trailer. They said they would need me around 2.30 in the morning. No problem. No problem. I was reading Silas Marner. I went back to my trailer, opened my book. The miserly, nearsighted Silas, thinking he had found his lost gold, reached down and held a handful of curls. A baby had crawled into his home. The baby's drug-addicted mother lay frozen in the snow outside. Silas, who had turned his back on all of humanity, was now forced to be father and mother to this thing he didn't care for in any way at all. Over the years, the child becomes his real gold. Silas devotes his life to this foundling. He changes. Life has beauty and meaning for him at last. Sixteen years pass. Then, from out of nowhere, his daughter's real father steps forward. He was one of the well to do of the town. He decides to take the child away from Silas to raise her in wealth. Silas is devastated as once more it appears that his gold will be taken away from him. And I fell asleep. I woke up with a tiny stream of sunlight falling across my face. My first thought was, Sunlight, not good for a night shoot. I bet you I'm done and I could go back to the hotel. I got up, I opened my trailer door, everyone was gone. Gone! Gone! The horses, the cannons, the thousands of extras, the crew, the cameras, everything, everything gone. The only thing left in this patch of the Sonoran Desert of Mexico was my trailer with me in my vintage 1846 cavalry uniform and saber. I followed tire tracks and footprints in the sand that led to a two-lane road about a mile away. I stood in my full military regalia with a bottle of water and my book. I had no idea which direction led to town and which direction led to the headquarters of the drug cartel. I tied my kerchief to my cavalry saber like a flag of surrender, and I waved it if I saw a passing motorist. Finally, a farmer in a red pickup truck with a goat tied in the back stopped. I think he was impressed by the uniform. I said, Durango? The man nodded and said, Si. I said, "Muchas gracias. I jumped in. On the road to Durango, I opened my book to find that Silas's daughter, Eppie, refused to stay with her real father. She says to him that wealth and position don't matter. Silas will always be her true father and that she can't think of no happiness without him. The farmer pulled in front of the hotel. I gave him all I had on me, which was $5. He thanked me and drove off. "'I went inside and gave the production office hell "'for leaving me stranded in the middle of the desert, "'and then I headed to my room to finish my book. "'I took off my clothes, shook out my shoes for scorpions. "'I jumped into the shower and then into bed. "'I opened up Silas again and smiled "'when I realized how little but how much had changed in my life. "'The nothing was still there. "'I was still being deserted and left to die in the wilderness.' But through reading, through the genius of Charles Dickens and George Eliot, I found new faces smiling at me from the darkness. And that's always comforting. Levinas said that nothing has the power to create two disproportionately large emotional responses in us, horror and holiness. He said the reason is that these two feelings are collective representations. They represent human reactions throughout time that have been preserved in us almost as instinct. Levinas suggests that it's a mistake to think that the fear of death is the basis of horror primitive man had no fear of death. It was a natural part of life. He was indifferent to it. Now, I'm not sure how Levinas knew this, but he lived in France, so I'm willing to accept this premise for the moment. He said what stirs both passions are meaning. Holiness is a state in which all things have meaning. We feel horror when meaning is removed. That is why a corpse is horrifying to us. It's not death itself, but the fact that the physical body has the shape but not the substance of meaning. Chainsaws are meant to cut wood for the winter. If you use them to cut down teenagers with car trouble, you remove meaning from you, the teens, and even the chainsaw. Then you have horror. Levinas said evil is the activity that removes meaning from others. doers." see themselves as phantoms, having the shape but not the substance of humanity. In other words, they've cast themselves as the star of their own zombie movies. People who refuse to see evil remove meaning from civilization and become zombies as well. More than the evening news, I look to horror films to understand the state of the world. They are our collective unconscious, warning us of the loss of meaning in our lives. Godzilla, is an essay on the dangers of nuclear proliferation, The Walking Dead, on the rise of terrorism. The flip side is that by telling horror stories, we give meaning to things that have lost their meaning. That is why resurrection is such a powerful idea, even for I the Monster. After our road trip to Chapman Lake in Pennsylvania, Uncle Ben carefully helped I out of the trunk and walked him down to the coal cellar. He got a bowl of water from the kitchen and took it back down into the darkness. When Ben finished, he closed the cellar door and put his hand on my shoulder. He's all safe now, Stevie. I must be honest. I was ten years old, and I didn't believe in I. In fact, Ann Esther told me Ben always took water down to the coal cellar for the stray cats in the neighborhood that occasionally came in from the cold. I still appreciated all of the efforts my uncle was making on I's behalf, but they still didn't go to the heart of my complaint. That night in bed, I heard the sound again. I carefully got up. I made sure I didn't kick Paul. I walked through the quiet house with purpose. I started down the stairs, and there was the noise. It was sharp. It was movement. I walked quickly through the dark kitchen into Granny's making-dough room. I was not as terrorized as I was the previous night. I checked the door to the coal cellar. It was closed. For some reason, I opened it and looked into the utter blackness. There was nothing but the smell of anthracite, a smell I still love to this day. Then I heard the noise behind me. Chills shot down my spine. It definitely was not I. I was sure of that. It came from the other side of the wall. I went to the partially concealed door and looked through the keyhole. There was the blue light. I heard the noise again. I saw the motion. I held my ground. A shadow passed in front of the keyhole. I looked down. The doorknob turned. That was it. I was gone. I ran upstairs, jumped into the bed, pulled the covers over my head. The next day, I cornered Uncle Ben in the kitchen. He was peeling an apple with his pen knife. It was a game he played. He tried to take the peel off in one slice. Ben did this for amusement to fill the nothing when he wasn't taking a walk or listening to a baseball game on the radio. I told him about my midnight encounter. Uncle Ben, I'm sure it wasn't I. There's something on the other side of that door. I saw a blue light. Ben got a serious look on his face. "'Not I the monster?' "'No, sir.' "'Ben nodded. "'I think I know what it could be. "'You want to take a walk?' "'Sure.' "'We left the house and walked down George Street. "'We rounded the corner and went into a saloon. "'This was the first saloon I had ever been in. "'The smell was incredible. "'Now I can say with certainty "'it was the bouquet of beer on hardwood floor. "'We sat down at a table.' An old man wearing an apron came up to us laughing. So, you brought me a new customer, Ben. Yeah, Mike. Two beers. Stevie, you want a beer, right? Uh, yeah, sure. Two beers and a short glass. Stevie, you ever had beer before? Uh, no, sir. Well, it's good to have it in a short glass. It stays cold. I think it tastes better, too. Mike, the bartender, brought over two beers and set them down. He stayed to watch. Ben said, go on, Stevie. Have a taste. I did. Well, how do you like it? It's good. It's cold. Mike started laughing. Ah, oh, that's a good boy. He's going to grow up to be a good man. Ben winked. Stevie, remember to have it in a short glass. Yes, sir. Ben gestured. Mike, sit down a second. The bartender joined us. Mike Stevie here has seen a ghost for the last couple nights. Oh, that's so. Yeah, I think I know what it is. Can we walk behind the bar? Sure, Ben. The three of us walked behind the bar. What a world of bottles and spigots there were. Ben walked up to a wooden door. Stevie, you see this door? Yes, sir. This door goes to our house. Your granddad used to own this bar. This leads to mom's pantry where she bakes. Before dad died, he sold the bar and we locked this door. Get down here where the keyhole is. Turn around and look toward the street. I obeyed. I was able to see chairs and tables of the saloon. And at the far end of the room was a cooler for beer. And on top was a Schlitz sign lit in neon blue. Ben knelt down and looked with me. So you think that could be your blue light?' "'I smiled. "'Yes, I think it could. "'Ben continued, "'and the shadow was probably Mike here cleaning up. "'Right, Mike?' "'Mike leaned in. "'No, Ben. "'I wasn't here.' "'But there was a shadow,' I said, "'and the doorknob turned. "'Mike got a concerned look. "'Nobody was here. "'I locked up early and went home. "'The place was empty.' Ben looked at me. Mike looked at Ben. There was a moment of prolonged silence in which the three of us rediscovered the holy.
0: That was The Two Kinds of Nothing, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowski, And you're listening to The Tobolowski Files. Just a reminder, we hope you guys will check out the new podcast we're doing at bigproblemspodcast.com. You'll probably also find an episode on the feed of The Tobolowski Files to give you a taste. Uh, In the meantime, Stephen, you want to tell people where they can find more of your work on the internet this week?
1: Probably the easiest thing to do since I'm on Twitter and Facebook. Just go to stephentobolowski.com and you'll get all of those handles there. But you have to spell my name right or you end up at some kind of naked site. And that is S-T-E-P-H-E-N T T as in Tom O-B as in boy O-L-O-W-S-K-Y The Russian spelling. And uh, my... My uh, email address is the same thing, Stephen Tobolowski at gmail.com.
0: Find more episodes of the Tobolowski Files at TobolowskiFiles.com. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you guys later.
1: Adios.